Thanks be to God, indeed. Um, we're having one or two minor technical issues here, lovely people. So if by any chance my Wi-Fi um, drops out completely, a video will come up um, and then we'll uh, we'll make some alternative arrangements. But hopefully uh, we are going to be OK to go. Um, but please do bear with us and uh, your thoughts and prayers for our lovely technical team. In the background, that's Rachel and Leilani this morning. Um, be praying for them and let's hope that this uh, all hangs together uh, for the, the little while. So, um, so most of you will know we've been um, we've been doing Alpha uh, with the young people at church at the moment, and we were watching some of the videos the other week. Um, and one of the questions asked was. Um, What's your most embarrassing moment? And I wonder what that would be for you. Uh, so my favourite answer from the video was um, from a girl who'd been on a date with a, a guy for the first time and it taken her out for a lovely meal um, to a lovely restaurant with some lovely food and the place was great and the food was great and the conversation was great and she was thinking that everything was going really well until right near the end of the meal when dessert was coming. Um, this uh, hot guy that she was dating and trying to impress uh, said something really funny after she'd just taken a mouthful of her dessert and uh, uh, she laughed so hard that she spewed um, her uh, dessert all down the front of him uh, and covered him from head to foot. Um, a really, uh, really uh, encouraging moment uh, that you really uh, enjoy that kind of situation. Uh, one of those real whoops ones. But I wonder for you what your most embarrassing moment might be. Have you ever done that thing where you come out of a toilet cubicle just to find yourself in the wrong six? bathroom um, or maybe there's something uh, where girls you've done that thing where somehow you just managed to get your skirt stuck in the back of your knickers uh, for a bit or guys have you ever like turned up for a, a business meeting in the wrong place or at the wrong time or maybe for each of us, we've we've tried to make some grand entry somewhere only to fall flat on our face um, or worse still, flat on our backsides in front of everybody watching. And, you know, we've all had those moments that we'd rather forget. But today I want to think about um, a bit more about the kind of shame and embarrassment that affects us far more than just those situations that make us feel a little bit silly. And I want us to think about the kind of shame that we've been freed from by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and what kind of embarrassment maybe we're prepared to put up with for the sake of the gospel. But just before I get into that, I want to give us uh, a bit of a heads up about where we're going in this mini-series of talks we've called The Victory of the Cross. And let's start by thinking for a minute about the cost to heaven of, of giving up the Son in order to rescue sinful man. We've already watched some of that in that video for the children earlier on what it cost the father to send him though and just how backwards the plan for salvation seemed to be what about a way of loving that's prepared to risk and look like it's losing everything so what about when winning looks like losing 
You know, who but God himself would come up with a plan for our salvation that looked like this? Who would have chosen the cruelest death to bring eternal life? Or who would have chosen the ultimate form of human humiliation and public defeat in order to win ultimate victory? And who, having all power and authority at hand with the forces of heaven's armies at his disposal, would have chosen to let himself be handed over into the hands of sinful man? And who, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, would allow himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? It's the very opposite of the kind of character that the world seems to delight in. It's the antithesis of the alpha male culture. It's the opposite of the Hollywood bumper sticker that I remember used to say, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins, amass whatever you can. I was remembering in the the election of both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson to office, and I mention this not for any sense of political comment, but just simply in order to contrast our worldly attitude with that of heaven. But when asked by a reporter what they both, what people liked about both candidates in the run-up to that 2016 election, Trump was hailed as such an alpha male. Um, and Johnson by a young conservative as a, oh, he's just so charismatic. He's like a rock star. And I guess when it comes to politicians, you do actually get what you ask for sometimes. You can have an alpha male. You can have a rock star if you want, together with all the consequences of that and what that brings. And the world will tell you that it's all about dog eat dog. It's all about the law of the jungle. It's all about fighting to win, about winning at all costs. Do whatever it takes to get to the top. But of course, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount spoke of a totally different way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said. The meek the peacemakers, the righteousness seekers, the merciful, the pure in heart, the persecuted, they're the ones that will inherit in the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, look down on you, falsely accuse you. You know you're on the right track when people despise you for being too nice and too good. So I suggest we need to be prepared to fail in the eyes of the world in order to win in the eyes of heaven. Are you someone that could give up your successful career to better support your family? Would you take a pay cut to serve a tiny charity rather than make it a a decent wage for a profit-driven corporation? Will you stand up for the rights of the oppressed in a culture that reviles you for associating with certain people? Would you be the one that can turn the other cheek when all you really want to do is fight your corner? And will you spend your life serving those who can give you nothing back? Ultimately, are we people who would choose significance in the kingdom of heaven over success in the world? And even in the church, even in the church, are you someone that's happy to serve faithfully in obscurity rather than making a name for yourself standing on the platform? 
You know, I suggest it's relatively easy to be Joshua leading the invasion of the promised land and having nations fall before you as God goes ahead of you. Because when you're winning, everyone gets behind you and supports you. But you know, it's true that someone has to lead in the desert. There were hundreds of clan leaders in the wilderness whose names no one ever got to hear. Servants whose sole job was to get a whinging bunch of ingrates to the place God wanted them to be. It was a thankless task, but I'd still say it was a high calling. When God's taking his people to the promised land, somebody's got to lead in the desert. Could that be you? Would you be that man or woman? Because, you know, choosing that path puts you in the company of Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of his betrayal, Peter uses a sword, but then Jesus heals the high priest's servant's ear. He literally sticks it back on and undoes the violence. And he says, don't you think I could have called down 12 legions of angels? You see, true power and authority, true majesty, not comes from having power, but from having it and not needing or choosing to use it. Jesus knows that he's got countless angels at his disposal in that situation, but he asked the question, but how then would be the scriptures that fulfilled that say it must happen this way? By the way, have you ever thought about the consequences of 12 legions of angels coming to fight for Jesus? Excuse me for being a bit of a nerd, but it's one of those kind of things as a youth pastor that always amuses me. So if a Roman legion was about 5,000 men, there's 10 cohorts of, of 500 soldiers at a time. So 12 legions is about 60,000 angels. And the Bible records in a situation where Hezekiah was besieged by the Assyrians, that one lone angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Have you ever stopped to think about what 60,000 of them could do? It would be world-ending, totally apocalyptic. I only mention it just to think about the available display of force in perspective you see Jesus was never defenseless he was never helpless but he chose to do his father's will he chose to suffer at the hands of sinful men for your sake and for mine and I contrast this with a worldview that says I'll destroy my enemies I'll show them no one gets the better of me Jesus' ways, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, berated them for their lawsuits against one another. Many of you will know that story. The fact that you're taking each other to court, he says, shows that you're already defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why do you need to prove yourself right? If your brother's that bust that he needs to swindle you, just let him. But I look weak, some people say. And? 
but I'm not a doormat, people say. I know that's true, but you live in an upside-down kingdom where the last become first and the greatest become the servants of all. You know, I call it an upside-down kingdom because it's the opposite of a worldly perspective, but maybe, really, it's us who are upside-down. Hmm? Maybe, just maybe, heaven's the right way up, and it's we who've got our perspective out of whack. And maybe when heaven looks at us, it's glaringly obvious just how busted and broken and hopeless we really are. And maybe, just maybe, instead of judging us in the way that that perhaps we would judge somebody else, heaven sees and takes the higher ground, and that causes it to rescue us instead. So instead of looking down on us, heaven looks out for us. So let's just go back to the passages that we were hearing before and thinking about guilt and shame and rescue and redemption and sin and salvation and the victory of the cross. So back to Hebrews 10. The scriptures say that day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, the scripture prophesied. And you know, no self-respecting Jew thought that the sacrifice he made made it clean made him clean on its own it, it it's not about paying off the sin it's it's about acknowledging it it's about coming and going here's my sin lord here's the act that leads to death here's my sacrifice i acknowledge my guilt before you lord please forgive me In fact, the Old Testament laws made it clear in several places that a sacrifice offered without repentance and a change of heart was an abomination to God. It had no religious value at all. King David, of course, the great psalmist and leader of his people, understood this, which is why he felt it was okay to set up an alternative way of worship in a tent of meeting that he sent up on the mount outside of Jerusalem. It's one of those things we see in the Bible that's a foreshadowing of the freedom that's to come in our worship of the Lord and all that Jesus was going to do. It's a symbol of God's desire to open a way to fellowship and worship in his presence. The setting up and establishment of this tent, there's an appointment of singers, of musicians, of prophets, there's thank offerings and shouts of joy. And all of that stuff spoke of a time when there was freedom to come in God's presence again, everything was songs of thanks and praise and celebration right before the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was manifested. And it broke all the Old Testament rules. There's no priesthood on the axis. There's no holy place. There's no holy of holies. There's no altar there's no lampstand there's no table of showbread there's no costume there's no ritual there's no separation there's no sacrifices and there's no blood anywhere at all in what david's doing but god's presence was there powerfully and prophetically 
And we can contrast this with the tabernacle of Moses, which is only about three miles away at the time at Mount Gibeon. And there, there was sweat and ritual and sacrifice and burnt offering odour and fat and ash and lots and lots of blood, sweat and tears. But there wasn't any presence. The presence of God over the ark has moved because the ark itself has moved and there's all of the ritual and none of it matters because they're in a new season and some of them haven't even noticed yet. I often wonder how it would have been for them serving in these two tabernacles. I often imagine them, these two sets of priests going off to their duties in the morning, leaving the city gates and trudging up the hill in the light of dawn. There's those going to David's tent with harps and lyres tucked under their arms and and cymbals hanging off their hands. And those going up to Moses' tabernacle, leading sheep and goats that are never coming back again. And then I imagine these same guys coming down at the end of their shift. And there's David's men full of joy and life, having spent the day in celebration and song, full of joy and excitement. You know, kind of, did you hear old Ben's prophetic song today? What a corker, man. And that word that Shem brought about the Lord's delight in his people, you know, it was so good. And they look over to their brothers coming down from Moses' tabernacle and they stink of the smoke of burnt offerings and they're all sweaty from manhandling livestock onto the altar and they're covered from head to toe in the blood of bulls and goats. And they ask them, how was your day then, guys? And of course, David's tent was just a short-lived dispensation for a man after God's own heart. And the sacrifices continued and the temple got built and many, many bulls and sheep and goats lost their lives for the sake of a sacrificial system that could never take away sins. The sacrifices and offerings acknowledged the sin, but all the blood only echoed the stain of the sin it could never take away. But though their sins be as scarlet, just like that blood, All those sacrifices for all that sin. They shall be made white as snow. The Lord reasoned through the prophet Isaiah. All those years before. And it was a promise and a hope of a time when sin could be dealt with once and for all. When this priest would offer for all time one sacrifice for sins as we read in verse 12. You see an old... Testament sacrifice was an acknowledgement of sin. Jesus' sacrifice offers an exchange for it. We offer our sins, he gives us righteousness. We offer our brokenness and he gives us his holiness. We bring him our guilt and shame and he declares us innocent. And more than that, the cleansing he gives us is complete, it's totally sufficient, it's enough for the sins of the whole world. Because his absolute purity, his total sinlessness, his unblemished, spotless, incorruptible sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of the whole world for all time. So how great is our sin? It doesn't matter. 
his sacrifice is greater. How damning is our guilt? It doesn't matter. His punishment on our behalf covered it. How big's our debt? It doesn't matter. He paid it. How deep is our shame? It doesn't matter because though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Hebrews 10.12 again, But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You know, when you talk to a 21st century Englishman about his sin, he'll largely be confused or defensive because he knows he's not that bad and that no one really has a right to judge him anyway. But you talk to him about his shame, and that's a different matter. I ask a person about the shame that they feel for their actions, their behaviour, their secrets, and they will to a man understand what I mean. We all carry a sense of shame for our darkest thoughts and our hidden actions, but Jesus has dealt with our shame. Because he removed our guilt. Because he paid the price. Because he served the sentence. Because he washed away the stain on the cross. You know, death on a cross was the ultimate shame. It's not just the cruelest way to die, but the most humiliating. It's a shameful way to die, stripped naked and pegged up like some fly while everyone scorns you, watches you gasping for breath, looks on as you futilely struggle in agony to keep your own weight up while suffering and pushing against the spike through your ankles. They're watching you suffer whilst knowing for certain that there's nothing that you can do. You're fixed in place as certainly as your inevitable death by asphyxiation. It's a death reserved for the worst of society. For the dogs whose lives are only fit to be served up as some morbid entertainment for the crowds. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, it was said. It was the worst punishment for the worst of sinners. So whatever we deserved, he took it. That's why we're made perfect forever. Not because we'll never sin, but because we know that when we do sin, the guilt of that sin, once we confess it, is already taken away. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. Colossians 2 talks about us being dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. When we were like that, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. And I just want to spend a few minutes just thinking about those things. When we were dead in our transgressions, it's paraphrased by Paul in Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, he says, Christ died for us. And this is huge. 
We get bogged down in what we're not. Crushed by the weight of our guilt and our shame. But Christ didn't wait for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstrings. He stepped down and stepped in. He rescued us while we were helpless. We were dead. He made us alive. We had no chance of sorting ourselves out. Because in case you hadn't noticed, the dead have no chance of self-rescue. But he gave us life. And then it goes on to say he forgave us our sins. He took away the charges against us. And in himself he nailed our charges to the cross through his hands and his feet. And the moment anyone accuses us of sin, we can point to the nails that held him to the cross and declare paid for. Paid for. And not only that, he disarmed the powers of darkness. What are the kind of weapons that the enemy uses? Fear, accusation, condemnation, lies, deception. He comes just to steal and to kill and to destroy, to undo who we are, to pull us down, to see us groveling in the dust instead of standing strong like the sons and daughters of God we really are. It's like the incident recorded in John 8 of the woman that's caught in adultery. They've literally pulled her out of another man's bed and dragged her to the temple. They're forcing her to stand before them all in a shame. She's guilty. She knows she's guilty. She's caught in the very act and there's nothing but humiliation and judgment for her here. And then she hears the words of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Now, it's one thing to escape judgment from her accusers and from the crowd. They were all caught in the same hopeless, sinful state. But at the end, she stands before her maker, her creator, her judge, and the Lord of all righteousness, the one who has every right to judge her actions and to declare her guilty. And what does he do? He lets her go. He lets her go. He sets her free. He gives her another chance for a fresh start. Neither do I condemn you. Not I find you innocent. Not you weren't any worse than anyone else. Not any of that stuff. You're manifestly guilty as charged. But he understands your brokenness. I get where you're coming from. I understand your sinful state means you act in this way. It doesn't mean your behaviour is okay. Go and sin no more. But God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, John 3.17 tells us. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. So do you ever wonder why you sin? Do you ever look at your own life and wonder why it's so hard to live up to the truth that you found in Jesus? <laughs> Is that just me? Why it's so hard to live up to what you've already attained, as Philippians 3.16 says? I think it's because we don't acknowledge our need of God and therefore we're distracted into thinking we can meet our needs in some different way. I wonder about this woman. She may have had several needs. She may have just needed to put food on the table. 
And her adultery is just some transactional agreement to meet a very real need for physical food. God promises to supply our daily needs, but maybe she doubts that or she feels the need to take matters into our own hands. How many of us have ever felt that need to take matters into their own hands, just like Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar? I know God promised us children, um, but maybe we should just give him a helping hand. It can be really hard to wait patiently for the Lord when his timing seems off to us. A friend of mine once commented that God always seemed to show up for him at the 11th hour and I replied to him that my experience is more that he seems to show up at about 5 past 12. Sometimes it's only when it looked like it's too late that God steps in to save the day. The important thing being not when he saves the day, but that he saves the day. It can be hard to wait for him and the unspoken challenge and maybe the suggestion from the enemy as well is that we would be wrong not to do something so we end up taking matters into our own hands and meeting our own needs. And Maybe this woman's just desperately lonely. Maybe she needs some physical company from a member of the opposite sex. Maybe it's just a friendship thing between two people who should have known better, but they let their feelings get out of hand. Or maybe she's been led astray or coerced by the guy that she's with, and maybe he's wooed her or groomed her or taken advantage of her. Maybe he's perceived a weakness in her that he can exploit. We don't know the full story of this woman in the same way that we rarely know anyone's full story but I'm fairly certain here that there was a need in this woman that she sought to fulfill by a means that God never intended you make as your husband Isaiah 54 says in the song to the barren woman and yet she sought to meet that need in a different way and in the end I suggests that pretty much all our sin comes down to us meeting our need in a way that God never intended. But in verse 13 and 14, as we read earlier, Paul tells us he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness that stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He's forgiven us our sins. He understood the way our sin affects us and he's forgiven our transgressions. He says to every accuser and every guilty heart, I paid the price for that. And so when we or the enemy or anyone else seeks to shame us for our sin, he can just point to that cross and say the debt is dealt with. You know, when the Romans crucified somebody, it suggested they would write the reason, they'd write the charge sheet up and they'd nail it to the cross so that everyone could see the shame and the crime for which this criminal was punished. That's why they nailed the sign on Jesus' cross, King of the Jews. It's a way of saying this is what happens to those that set themselves up against Caesar's authority. But now when anyone brings a charge against us, Jesus points to his cross and says, I took that shame and punishment. I paid for that crime. 
I dealt with that sin. There it is. It's nailed to my cross. Was the crime worthy of death? Was the sin worthy of ultimate punishment? Yes, it was. But see, that price has already been paid. And every power of darkness, every accuser and every nitpicky and pharisaical tormentor is forced to accept that the price is paid. The debt is gone. There's no more charge to answer. Which means that our shame is gone too. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. And of course that's how Jesus disarmed the powers of darkness as we read in verse 15. Their weapons of accusation, their charge against us, the evidence of the code that we've broken, all that overwhelming evidence of our guilt that they sought to use to prosecute us with, it doesn't matter. Because when all is said and done, our advocate, our defence simply points to the cross and said the price is paid, the sentence is served, there's nothing left to account for. You see, it doesn't matter that they can prove you guilty, your guilt's not in question. Just like that woman caught in the act of adultery, it's blatantly obvious that you're guilty, we're all bust. But what matters is that the punishment for your transgression has already been served. He's disarmed the powers of darkness because even when their testimony against you is true, there's no further sentence to be served. You can walk free. This is the miracle of the cross and the wisdom of God. This is the wonder of Jesus' sacrifice. Not that we're made innocent of all crime, but that whatever punishment was deserved... All the sins of the world were heaped on Christ on the cross. The only one who never deserved to die. This is the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense, as the old acronym goes. That we are blessed not because God overlooks our sin or ignores our sin or brushes our sin under the carpet, but because he paid the cost of our sin and it can never count against us. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, says Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And that's you. And that's me. And it's all those who trust in Jesus. But you say, Ming, that's fab, but I still feel guilty for the sin I commit. And you know, one of the enemy's favourite tactics is to rub our faces in the sins we've committed. And even better, if he can trap us into a cycle of sin and keep on rubbing our noses in it. You know, he's not called the accuser of the brethren for nothing. You know, it's appropriate that we feel bad about our negative behaviours. If we're not concerned when we sin, there's probably something wrong. If we don't have an aversion to sin, How are we ever going to change our lives and live in a different way? How are we ever going to repent and turn from it? The Apostle Paul had to deal with a heresy that actually said, let's keep sinning, then grace can abound more. And that insisted that if Jesus dealt with all our sin, then absolutely everything is permissible. We can do what we want, however we want to live. And his response to that, if that's your attitude, it's like, nailing Jesus to the cross all over again 
But, you know, there's a difference between wrestling with sin and trying to live in holiness and feeling condemned because it's a struggle. Paul's great self-argument in Romans 7, 1 goes that the sins, I, uh, the things I want to do, I, I, I don't do. And the sin I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. But then it's not really me doing it. It's sin at working me doing it. I delight in God's law, but I'm at war within myself, battling a mind that wants to live for Jesus and a flesh that wants to live for itself. What a wretched man I am. And then he lets out this exasperated, who can rescue me from this constant struggle with myself? Do you ever feel like that? How am I ever going to be free of that? But then he comes out with, thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not an end to his struggling. It's not an end to learning how to live in holiness. It's a celebration that even whilst this internal battle is going on, the eternal battle for the salvation of our souls has already been won. How am I rescued? Not through personal victory and aesthetic holiness and achieved perfection on my own part. But through Jesus is won our freedom by his death on the cross. So just a final thought. When the accuser comes and tells you that you're rubbish. You're rubbish. Just tell him. Yeah, I know. But have you seen my Jesus and all he's done? Let's pray. Jesus, we kneel and marvel again at the foot of your cross. Not just the sacrifice that you gave, not just the life that you laid down, but Lord, all that you accomplished. When the world thought it had done its worst, you turned it into victory. Lord, you didn't fight your own battle. You walked your Father's will for our sake. Not my will, but yours, you said. And Lord, because of all that you've done, you've made a way that our guilt and our shame may be gone. Though our sins be as scarlet, Lord, they are white as snow. Lord, we know what we like, but we're blessed because our sins will never count against us. So, Lord, when our consciences condemn us, when the enemy accuses us, when others run us down, Lord, help us just to humbly accept the fact, yeah, we know. But here's our Jesus. There's the price that was paid. There's the blood that was shed on our behalf. The sentence is served. Our debt is cleared. There's no longer any charge to answer. 
we are free to live for you. So Lord, help us to choose to live for you. Help us to choose not to meet our own needs, but to look to you for every need that we had. You are the one who will supply our daily bread and all other things that we need, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and that that you have promised you will bring to fulfilment and you are able to keep safe until that day all that we've entrusted to you. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we worship you, we serve you for who you are. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. Lord, you're worthy of all honour and worship. And we give it to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen.